Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I'm Jeff Liggett, and I'm actually the co-chair of our programs committee, along with Jeanette Outlaw. Uh, on behalf of the uh, Cornette Chicago Board of Directors, we'd like to welcome all of you here today for what uh, promises to be a very interesting and exciting program. Our speakers today are David Sykes and R.J. Brennan. And to tell you a little bit about our speakers, David Sykes has um, a more than 35-year career. He's been instrumental in the turnaround refocusing or startup of companies in two dozen industries. His career began as a corporate turnaround manager in the mid-70s, then started, ran, and sold a successful manufacturing company before serving as professor of management at Boston University. He co-founded the Remington Group in 1988, which provides research and advisory services to top-tier investment companies, top-tier law firms, and other groups, is a strategic advisor to Fortune 500 and global 100 companies, and is a stakeholder in early and mid-stage technology ventures. He has advised and invested in numerous ventures, including a disruptive method for marketing musical recordings through major concert ventures, venues and national public broadcasting. This venture was backed by Harvard Business School, strategic guru Michael Porter, who along with Mr. Sykes and the company's founder were profiled in the Wall Street Journal, Business Week, and Harvard Magazine. Early in his career, Mr. Sykes met and advised the founder of nanotechnology, K. Eric Drexler, and is credited in Drexler's book, Engines of Creation. Mr. Sykes currently serves on, as, on the CEO Council of PureTech Ventures, is a member of the steering committee of the Massachusetts Nanotechnology Initiative, is lead manager of NanoNexus 2007, and is executive secretary of the Joint Committee on Privacy of the ASA, INCE, and NCAC, three international engineering societies affiliated with the American Institute of Physics. He currently leads an international initiative advocating and developing policy for the implementation of federal legislation to protect privacy and security. He has many publications, <clears throat> including book chapters for the MIT Press and case studies on his consulting assignments for Harvard Business School. He was educated with a Bachelor of Arts at the University of California, Berkeley, received his Master of Arts from Cornell University and his PhD from Cornell University. Uh, speaks on a number of occasions. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to David Sykes. <clears throat> Our second participant today is R.J. Brennan. R.J.'s no stranger to any of us here, past president of Cornet chapter here in Chicago. During R.J.'s 27-year career in interior design and strategic work environments, he has had an overriding focus towards service based on straight talk, constant communication, and learning the dynamics, particularly the financial pressure points of the client's business. Guiding teams in strategic office studies and full design services, he has long been a champion of benchmarking as an objective valuation tool. His expertise provides a valuable resource in the development of comprehensive workplace solutions that require sensitivity to human resources, IT, finance, real estate, design operations, and facility management issues. As an associate member of IIDA and a lead accredited professional, RJ is an associate and director of IA Architects in Chicago and is their national lead of strategic workplace services. 
RJ gained his education as, with a Bachelor of Architecture from the Illinois Institute of Technology and a Master of Science in Communication from Northwestern University. He's a frequent lecturer and has presented numerous times at Cornet Global Summits uh, throughout the years. IFMA Workplace, World Workplace, the AAIA National Convention, and Neocon. Please join me in a warm welcome for RJ. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure being here today. We really appreciate this opportunity. Luckily, it's uh, 10 days after I'm no longer president, so I'm cool with it. Uh, we've done this at every summit since starting with Philadelphia, uh, including the uh, Lisbon, Auckland, uh, Melbourne, Singapore, uh, you know, all over. And uh, we, we've really enjoyed the opportunity to continually modify the presentation to adapt to the local market. Uh, and I think that you're going to find it to be very, uh, very interesting. Uh, I like to say, a little feedback. I like to say that what we're talking about here isn't rocket science, but if you listen to what David says, you know, David, David would tell you that to understand that it really is. The key to our presentation today is we're going to tell you what time it is. We're not going to tell you how to build the watch. We want you to be able to walk away from this presentation and be able to not only be wowed by the opportunities that are in front of you, but understand that the things that we're talking about in this presentation are available today. You can go out and buy these products today. You can apply them to your projects. There are uh, obviously advantages to understanding what the products are capable of and, and how you could use them to be more effective in the types of things that you're doing in your work environments and your buildings, because these are both base building applications as well as interior applications. But the reality is so many of the products you're going to see don't look any different, that they simply they are performing differently. So it's very important for you as, as owners and, and end users to be demonstrative about your desire to push the envelope on the type of capabilities that your spaces and, and buildings are going to provide, as well as from a service provider uh, side to be able to be aware of what's out there, to be able to search it out and understand it, and be able to help your clients do a better job of, of, of looking for the, uh, the higher level of capabilities. David? Thank you. And thanks for, uh, for giving, us, giving us your attention. You have the remote. I'm working on trying to use it. How many of you visit the U.S. Conference of Mayors website periodically to find out what's going on? Anyone here? Want to take a shot at it? I'm not being successful. No, it's not right. Every day. Uh, it's really interesting to watch because they have, there's a little counter at the top of the U.S. Conference of Mayors website. This is where Mayor oh, Daley wow, hangs out, as well as 30 other mayors in the in the state here. Um, but uh, U.S. Conference cool. of Mayors has a little number at the top, like you know, it scrolls every moment. And it tells you the number of cities that have signed up for the green initiative that's come out of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And as of yesterday, I didn't check it this morning, there were 830 cities in the U.S. have signed up to support the Kyoto Initiative in the U.S., which is a pretty interesting statistic because they set out to get 150, and now you know they, they got to 830 without trying very hard after two years. There's an enormous weather front, as it were, blowing through the country at this moment and blowing in all directions, and it really has to do with trying to get to sustainability. And the pressure to do it sooner rather than later has obviously changed a lot with the change in, in Congress uh, last year and what's coming down the road, irrespective of who gets elected 
we're going to be seeing something very different. So whether or not the country ever embraces the idea of the Kyoto Protocols, 830 mayors and counting have signed up for this, including Mayor Daley and 30 cities in the state of Illinois, and 138 cities in the surrounding states, Indiana, Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, et cetera. So if you look at your whole cluster, there are 138 cities in this region that have all signed up for the Kyoto Protocol, which requires that you meet, that you reduce greenhouse emissions by 7% below the 1990 level by 2012. So before the next president is even out of office, whoever that happens to be, 830 cities have said, we're going to meet targets from 1990. In fact, beat them by 7%. That's an enormous target to go after. How that's going to happen, anybody's guess. Well, Growing grass on the roof, lots of things you can to, do. What David's alluding to <clears> is the, the obvious direction that uh, is, 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 is trending right now is a governmental mandating of aspects, uh, if not extensive amounts of uh, sustainability in projects. But if you want to hear more about that, you got to come to the summit in San Diego. It's Tuesday at 2.30. And we're actually doing a talk on this subject in San Diego because it, when you find that national policy is led by mayors, you find that you're creating a fair amount of chaos. How many of you work with companies that have, have portfolios that span more than one city? How many of you have portfolios that span more than one country? Okay, so you know that you have a problem trying to figure out how you align with what goes on in Chicago, with what goes on in Indianapolis, with what goes on in San Diego, et cetera. Just trying to figure out what each of those mayors is doing to make all this possible. This is a long way of saying that what everybody's finding out, beginning to find out, is that you can't do it with available techniques, okay? Just as 100 years ago, you couldn't have built Chicago using the available technology at the time. Believe me, it couldn't have been done. It took new technology to make Chicago possible, which is why it's the first modern city. You won't be able to get to sustainability and reach those targets without tapping into some technologies that you're probably not familiar with, okay? But many of which are already on the market, okay? So the, the real estate and construction industry tends to be a, a, a tends to lag behind in terms of technology adoption, but there's this enormous push now to actually make this happen, which means that you're gonna have to dig down and understand what the technologies are that make it possible. One thing that's interesting about this is the technologies that are making, that are waving, making a, 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 a substantial change, basically a materials revolution that's been taking place. It started about 40 years ago, and nanotechnology is where most of it's coming from. But what is nanotechnology? We'll come to that. 24 years ago was the first time somebody actually put the word down. Before that, actually 40 years ago was when people really started talking about it. We have the tools available to manipulate things one, one atom at a time, okay? A lot of the things that you're putting into buildings now uh, compact fluorescent light bulbs, uh, OLEDs, LED screens on your computer, on your, on your, uh, most of you have cell phones, those have OLED screens in them, uh, televisions with OLED screens, all these things owe their existence to nanotechnology. It's simply a different way of doing things that involves manipulating atoms one at a time, building things one atom at a time, okay? So it affects chemistry, it affects physics, it affects everything. But it makes it possible for you to buy paints and concrete and steel and glass today that is fundamentally different than what you would have bought earlier, okay? These technologies, again, are coming to market and they're revolutionizing the materials that you use in building buildings and they make possible the Burj in Dubai, the tallest building in the world. The new tower down the street that's being put up by Calatrava. These are all due to technology advances that weren't available earlier. So the technology curve has, has accelerated in terms of what's available and what needs to be adopted to get to the triple bottom line or sustainability.
the, uh, just get a little familiarity here with the group. Um, how many people in the room assume that when they, and some of these are old questions, or at least they feel old because we've asked them a million times. We're going to ask them yet one more time. Uh, how many of you think that when you do green, do a green building, uh, you have a, a, a net premium to the construction cost of doing it? There's probably a, there's a good percentage of people here, maybe 30, 30%, maybe. Okay. And can any of you name three nanotech, nano-enabled uh, building products? Just three. Just three. Can you name one? Rick. Okay. Yes, okay. indeed. Uh-huh. Anyone else? Anyone use the Home Depot bare paints? Do your bathroom, the uh, water, uh, the water paint, the water ba waterproof paint that they put in there. It's nano enabled. It's just not identified on there, but it's a nano enabled paint. And uh, how will how will nanotech enable the building stock? I suppose if you're not familiar with the products, you probably don't know how exactly that might help. Safe? Okay, we got our work cut out for ourselves, David. We got our work cut out for ourselves. Okay, so just a little background on the uh, the, the presentation we're going to go through because we're going to we've learned from experience from the uh, six or seven times we presented the summits and then the next seven or eight times we presented the chapters, we've learned that if we go all the way through the end, we get one set of questions. But if we break it up throughout the the course of the presentation and ask for questions at the end of each, you're going to be a lot happier because you're going to remember what the questions are and they're going to probably be more poignant. So. We're going to go through each of the sections, and we will have a, a chance to uh, have questions. Chris will be running around like a crazy woman with the uh, the microphone, so that you'll be able to everyone will be able to hear whatever questions you want to ask. And we encourage you to to uh, to ask uh, as many questions uh, as as you're interested in in asking. We will have a couple case studies. We'll have one that's uh, an office work environment that's actually a physical work environment that's only a couple blocks from here. Uh, and we're going to be talking about a, uh, a large-scale uh, building ground up case study that's uh, in uh, Carcafou, France. Uh, so we're, we're going international on this story. But it has applications directly here. And yes, I have all the conversions of square meters and, and euros into things that you'll understand. Uh, and then we have some you know, tidbits of information for you, you all to run with as far as information sources and places to be able to, to, to verify that we have a clue what we're talking about. Uh, and this will be available on the web, and as you are probably come familiar, these will also be available as a uh, podcast uh, shortly after if you go to the uh, Chicago uh, web page. I miss anything? Go ahead. <clears throat> so... We're going to try and establish for you some some basic a basic understanding of context for everything we're going to be talking about today. <clears throat> so we're starting with a background on nanotechnology, which is actually quite engaging, even for me. Uh, and you will also get a, get a very good background in a broad uh, number of construction materials to which the nano enablements are are currently being applied. David, you want the want the clicker that button there? All right. Thanks. Well, you'd probably be better off talk, talk about some of these things here. But the, the, the real, one of the maybe reasons you should be interested in the subject is because oh, my bad. energy. Go <laughs> ahead. Go ahead. 
Your industry, the real estate industry itself, has has uh, enormous impact on being able to do to do green. I, mean, I grew up in Michigan, so I heard a lot about the transportation industry. The transportation industry is very sensitive about being a target. But in fact, if you add the transportation industry and a couple of other major targets together, they don't have the anywhere near the impact of the real estate industry. Okay, if you want to reduce global, you know, global warming, you want to have some impact on it. The biggest target sitting out there is your business. Okay, your industry, changing the light bulbs. That's why there's beginning to be a lot of pressure from the energy department and everybody else. So you guys are going to get hit first. Okay, change the light bulbs, turn down the heat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is where things are going, and cars will come along later. Yeah, you turn down the heat and people get uncomfortable, you get hot cold calls. I mean, the, the issue is not only in reducing the expenses, but improving the delivery of the work environment. I mean, we, Bill Agnello, I don't know if, how many of you were here when Bill and, uh, Agnello and Chris Hood spoke uh, last year, but Bill came in and teed up you know, an issue of uh, global competitiveness and that there was an inherent inefficiency in the, uh, the real estate uh, based on literally unoccupied but rented space, and that, that needed to be pulled out. On top of that, you have these inefficiencies, which because of the way the economy is working currently, what we're seeing is a, in the past, if, uh, if America sneezed, the rest of the world caught cold. But what's happening with this current situation is that the United States economy is, going, is tanking, whereas the, the, the China and the European economy is just moving along fine, and it will continue that way for a period of time based on some economists that uh, I, I heard earlier in this week. That's, that's yet another issue from an economic standpoint. And today, just this morning, uh, believe it or not, crude oil, which uh, we were talking or sometime mid-last year, $100 a barrel was going to be okay. That was imaginary, and how bad that could be for real estate. We're looking at $150 a barrel potential by the end of this year. And oil, today in the spot market, an hour and a half ago, was $100.71, and that was down. From, from what it was uh, earlier. So we're looking at a lot of pressures that are going to be making us uh, more focused on stuff that we like to talk about but not necessarily act on. So why are we talking about it from a nanotechnology perspective? The simple fact is the U.S. has the largest footprint in this industry, and what the U.S. has to sell to the rest of the world is technology. That's the business that we're in as a country. Okay? So technology is part of technology push is what we really have to offer. And our future is, is going to be based on the extent to which we can leverage the technologies that we originate here. However, technology U.S., I'll talk about programs around the world, the level of investment around the world. We're, we're in a global horse race with other countries, other, other regions on, on staying ahead of this particular technology. But let's start with the basics. What is it? Uh, the picture you're looking at, first of all, is three carbon nanotubes. Okay? They look like the Bucky, Bucky, Bucky Fullerene, Fullerene's, Buckminster Fullerene is the name of an element that was discovered uh, less than 10 years ago. The first nanotechnology product, as it were, um, it's that that particular shape. But the tube made out of fullerenes that you see there is is the size of a of a it's smaller than a piece of wire. Excuse me. So you're looking at something that's one ten thousandth the size of bacterium, made out of individual atoms, okay, and can be fabricated now. Well, what that means is the telephone you have in your pocket doesn't need to be that big, okay. The laptop doesn't have to be that big. When you start going to circuits that are made out of fullerene tubes. You're talking about things that are significantly smaller and lighter and more energy efficient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The screen on that computer is an OLED screen. It's lighter, okay? It's lighter and brighter. It uses less energy. So these are advances that, look, that come out of this. But if you're looking at something this small, tell your kids this, you're looking at something, a nano, a nanometer is 80,000 80, times smaller than a human hair. For those of you who have hair, 
<laughs> I can't use that analogy with Mike. <clears throat> so why are we talking about it now? The simple fact is we can do it. We, we have had the tools available scientifically and from an engineering perspective to, to manipulate atoms one at a time for about 40 years. And you know, I'll show you a table in a minute that basically the global investment ramped up suddenly just several years ago, about 2003, 2004. And now the global investment is about 10 billion, about a, you know 25% of that to 30% of that is in the US. But as I said, it's a global horse race between us and Europe and Asia. They're good at some aspects of it, we're good at some other aspects of it, but it is a horse race. So if your kids are trying to figure out what they're gonna do in the future, forget the word micro, okay? The computer revolution is over, okay? What's happening now is the nanotech revolution. That's where your kids will find employment. If, there's employ if there are jobs available, they'll be available in those fields. <clears throat> There are also a lot of products available. Another counter that might be interesting to watch is a, is, a, is, a, is a watch site at Princeton University that watches developments in nanotechnology, and they keep finding new products. They started out two years ago thinking, well, there probably aren't very many, maybe there are 80. They got up to 500 very quickly. So the pants you're wearing, the shirt you're wearing, may very well be nano-enhanced. There are lots of fibers that are being treated with Noel, Steelcase, Herman Miller. Which of the people from all those companies here? Steelcase, okay all have products that are treated with nanotechnology, okay? You may not mention it, may not come up in conversations, but the fact is those, those products are, are enabled by that. <clears throat> so 500 and counting products available, including the paints, bare paints, and others, for instance, that you can buy at Home Depot. But bottom line on this is if you're talking about sustainability, you have to depend on those products. <clears throat> I want to take you back a few thousand years here first before getting into this because we talk about it as if it's brand new, and in fact, it isn't brand new. This was an interesting experiment that was done in Germany recently. They took a piece of, of steel. Uh, you've heard the term Damascus steel, okay? This, this kind of wavy pattern that you see in steel. That's a way of making, uh, making things out of steel that was first practiced way back in Sri Lanka, about 300 BC. It's called Wootz steel. And believe it or not, the technique for making that was lost around 1750. No one knows where it went. But the fact is, we don't know how they did it. So if you're looking at current Damascus steel, something made recently out of Damascus steel, that's an approximation. They don't know how they did it. They're doing it differently. But they come up with something that looks the same. Well, what was the advantage of wood steel? Wood steel has a great advantage of being very high strength and extremely flexible. Okay. Well, this group in Germany, I think it was Berlin, about a year ago did some research on an old piece of, of wood steel and discovered that, in fact, it was laced with fullerenes, which we thought we invented less than 10 years ago. In fact, they were naturally, they were part of the ore that was used in making this steel, and more than likely, it disappeared about 1750 because the ore supply ran out, and nobody knows where it came from, okay? So we have a remnant in which, here's an example in human history in which technology that's useful now disappeared several hundred years ago. How do we get it back? <clears throat> we're trying to, re to rediscover it again, but the discovery that it had naturally occurring nanotubes in it was really an exciting discovery. Now this is what the investment level looks like and the reason if you've been reading about nanotech and it keeps coming up in the papers a lot, that's because there's money being spent on it. Everybody from Intel to Ital Cement is, is uh, put money into this. But you notice the big ramp up right around 2000, 2000, 2001. Everybody woke up, the EU, the US, Japan, et cetera, woke up and said, oops, time to get moving. You see how slow the ramp was. Um, my friend Eric Drexler, who uh, coined the word nanotechnology back in 1983, waited a long time. 
Um, I didn't invest back then. I'm glad that I didn't. I helped them out, but I didn't put any money into it. As you can see, what the ramp has has been. Now it's really, it's, uh, now it's really taking off. <laughs> and you see that the spending is roughly roughly even between the various regions. China now claims to have the largest group of nanotechnology-based com companies in the in the world. So they actually count companies and say, well, we have more than everybody else. Well, don't know if that's for sure, but. How advanced is their technology? We don't really know, but the point is people are jumping into this uh, trying to figure out how to use it. <laughs> the types of investment, the vast majority of this federal monies, government monies, as to say, but the private sector plays a huge role in it as well. Now, the U.S. federal government, if you look at the top 22 federal agencies, the alphabet soup up here from everybody from uh, uh, Department of Defense, which is what you would expect to the Treasury, to the FDA, et cetera, all have money earmarked in their budgets for investment and spending on nanotechnology-related developments. <coughs> Just to give you an example, in the U.S., how does this look? There are basically seven co program component areas in the U.S. federal budget for nanotechnology. The nanotechnology, uh, 21st Century Nanotechnology R&D Act, which was passed in 2003. This was the second act. The first was in the last year of the the Clinton administration, they put the first block of federal money into this, and then Bush came along in 2003 with this law. But you see how it breaks down. Nanomanufacturing, you know, 47 mil. The main point I wanted to make about this is this figure right here is societal dimensions. Because this is unusual. You know, we've lived through the biotech revolution. How much money do you think was spent by the federal government to actually research the societal impacts of biotechnology? Would you believe zero? How much money was spent to investigate the societal impacts of the micro-revolution? Would you believe zero? Okay. This is a fundamentally different way of making federal policy. Actually, earmark monies that goes to people to say, what could go wrong? Okay. Now, there's a big argument about whether that's enough money. But the fact is we're spending some money to actually look at this. So if you go to any country we've spoken to on this subject, including Singapore and... Uh, Portugal, et cetera, all of their budgets reflect this kind of thinking. Everybody's thinking about what the, what are the negatives? Where could something go wrong here? Okay, I'm, I'm going to a certain point with this because I wanted to point out to you that while you've read in the papers about how nanotechnology may have an impact, will have an impact on computers and life sciences and medicine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you've all read these stories, right? You think nanotech, what do you think of? What do you think, medicine? Life sciences? It's not going to get there for a long time. The first impact of nanotechnology is in the products that support what we're, what we're standing in here. Ceiling piles, concrete, steel, wood, etc. That's the first application of nanotechnology. So the products that you use, or the people who report to you use, are the first dimension of the nanotechnology revolution. With one exception, and that's cosmetics. So if you buy sunscreens, you'll find that most of the sunscreens on the market now contain a material which is nanotechnology-based. And you're rubbing that on your skin. Is that a good thing? Well, frankly, nobody knows. Okay? <laughs> I'd be a little, I, with my kids, you have to be very careful, read the label, but what it is that's making that particular sunscreen make the claims that it is. I don't mind putting it on the walls as paint, et cetera, okay, or on the floors as coatings, and light bulbs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think benign applications, i.e. building materials and products, is the right place for the nanotechnology revolution to really get traction before we get into what you're going to rub on your skin and all the rest of the kind of stuff. And you Does that make be, sense? You will be seeing us uh, or hearing us talk about that same product being applied 
to uh, building materials. <laughs> so the other thing we, we tend, as Americans, we tend to think that the private sector drives things. I'm sorry that's not the case. In, with respect to every other major revolution that's taken place in the last century and a half, they're all led by federal spending, unfortunately. Big blocks of money, the private sector comes in later. The same is true in nanotechnology, okay? You'll find the vast majority of money is being spent by governments, but in 2005, I haven't updated this figure, but at that point, about 1,300 companies and 76 industries were already working in this area and had invested $3.2 billion in nanotechnology and had already sold about $35 billion worth of products in this area. The level of private investment is expected to reach about $12 billion this year. That's a significant increase. <clears throat> and at companies like GE, for example, it's a top priority. Uh, you know, how are they going to get there first? It's a competitive issue for them. Venture capitalists, on the other hand, I spent a lot of time with people in the venture business on private equity, which is the DC's part of private equity, <clears throat> have only spent about $2 billion so far. And, you know, there are maybe 150 companies that have nanotechnology involved in the, what they're developing. So the venture capital business has not jumped on board yet, which is probably why not reading lots of stories about, about startups that are getting into this. So governments and corporations spend about 19 times more than the private sector, um, than, than uh, private investors. But that will change as, as the opportunities abound. Does it make a difference? Yeah, it makes a difference. It's important. Is it important about nanotechnology in specific? No, not in specific. It's a perfectly good example. There are others, biomimicry and a large number of others. But the key here is that we need to design smarter. We need to be able to operate our buildings more efficiently. How do we do it? If you keep doing the same thing as you've done before, you're going to continue to get the same results. So we need to make some fundamental change in the way in which we look at our projects, the way we look at our understanding and doing the discovery for our projects, the way we look at implementing our projects. Our good friend, Kevin Kampscher, uh, I don't know how many of you remember him. He's spoken here a couple times with the GSA. He's uh, the lead researcher for the GSA. Just had a, a very, very, very nice uh, uh, job upgrade. He was identified the, in, uh, the acting commissioner of the high-performance buildings within the, uh, the, the GSA. So he, he's uh, still working for, uh, for Stanley Kaczmarek, but he's, he's looking at the buildings and taking them and dialing them up to a level that is just simply inconsistent with the way that, we, that, that most of the buildings that we're habitating right now uh, in our life uh, are operating. And his, his requirement or obligation is to get his buildings to uh, a, a zero carbon footprint, which is uh, quite a bit higher than the platinum lead building. Uh, it's much more of a challenge, but it requires them to look differently at the way in which projects are brought together, look differently at the way in which you engage senior management, look differently at the way in which you create and track metrics about the, uh, about the projects that you're doing. Okay, I'm going to ask you to just put on your running shoes, uh, for, uh, metaphorically, that is, uh, for a few minutes, because I want to run through 12 categories of building materials just to show you the kinds of changes that are taking place, because it may become as, come as something of a surprise, but I'm showing nine here, but everything from glass and insulation to paints and textiles and concrete, et cetera, are products that are familiar. You may be using them now, but in fact, they owe their existence to these advances, these scientific advances. <clears throat> so, steel, concrete, glass, gypsum, fabric and carpet, energy, Filtration, electronics, tools, coatings and paints, lighting, insulation. I'll show you just a couple of examples in this. But if I if I fleshed out each of these categories, there would be, you know, 10 to 12 companies, reputable companies, not startups, in each of these categories that are actually practicing this. Um, 
And the issue for them is, how do they get this into the marketplace? So many of these products have been on the market for a period of time, some for quite a while, but many of them relatively recent. They need to get them into buildings in order to help buildings become uh, sustainable. So starting with steel, nanocomposite steel, anybody heard of this? Very interesting company, very investable uh, in California called MMFX. I'm not selling their stock, I don't. Um, but uh, MMFX has developed a steel that came out of my alma mater, University of California, Berkeley, that renders a 20 to 40 percent savings in the cost of steel because the steel can be, you can use less of it, okay? More steel to, less steel to accomplish the same purpose. And because it's actually longer lasting. So it simplifies the construction of buildings. So people like Calatrava, et cetera, are looking at this type of product because it enables them to, to build different types of buildings using lighter, stronger materials. <coughs> concrete. Concrete is a really interesting category. The amount of, of investment in R&D in the concrete industry is, net, is near zero for about 2,000 years. Until recently, now all of a sudden, there's a lot of investment going into concrete. If you look, anybody know Ital Cementi? They have a branch in the U.S., a good example here, in which they have developed uh, several different approaches to concrete. Translucent concrete is one of them. Translucent concrete is an interesting idea. What would be its advantage? Well, light can get through it, right? So now you have something that concrete could do, let natural light in, let artificial light out, light the street, et cetera. It is actually quite a significant advance. It wasn't hard to do, but somebody in the concrete business had to say, we are going that way. Okay? And they were driven by architects, by projects. We'll show you one later. <clears throat> glass, you mentioned glass. I think every, I can't think of a single major glass manufacturer that isn't already leveraging this, okay? You don't see it on the label, okay? But they're already leveraging it in terms of coatings, um, interlayers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that actually make it possible for glass to do a better job. The, uh, How much would you, sorry. I'm sorry, the example would be the canopies. A lot of canopies, you're seeing a lot of glass canopies uh, over entries, and you're wondering like, how come they, the new ones don't seem to get so dirty as the old ones do? It's because that they, they have the, uh, the coating on them that makes them uh, resist dirt buildup. In other words, it makes the organic material uh, uh, break down. It makes inorganic material wash off with water. Actually, what's that product that you buy? Uh, rain, rain, Rain-X? You can buy, Rain-X, right, buy a little Basel Rain-X. Okay. Right. That's from PPG. It's licensed from PPG. Right. That's a nanotech product. They put it on your windshield, water washes off, right? It's it like magic, great. but it isn't. It's just physical science. So glass is a very good category to look for those advances in. This is one that I think is really exciting because it, you know, you can get rid of the curtains, but switchable glass has been available as an LCD-based product for some time, but it's really expensive. Uh, to do it with a nano layer, a nano interlayer is a lot cheaper, so it becomes practical to actually do this with glass. <clears throat> drywall, drywall is one of those really awful products. It's, you know, it's expensive to mine, it's expensive to turn into product, it's messy, it, you know, disintegrates in the rain, you know, you get a flood like you had in New Orleans, it just, you know, goes to pieces. It's just, it's a messy, dirty product. And, and yet, it's been improved. There are improvements being made to it. Some companies already have this where they use nanotechnology to, to strengthen the product, make it, make it water resistant, et cetera, and to make it stronger so you can lose less of it. As you know, it's an extremely heavy product. You build a building, you have to make the building strong enough to hold all this stuff up. Fabrics. Well, there are lots of fabrics available, <clears throat> available now. At, at, see, every major, uh, uh, furniture design company is now using one of these lines, but they all go back to one inventor. I'm proud to say he also graduated from my alma mater, University of California. <laughs> a gentleman named David Sohn. Very interesting guy. 
chemists developed an approach to coating fibers in fabrics that makes it possible for you to wear slacks that hold their press permanently, uh, that resist not only resist stains, but you know they don't stain. You can spill a glass of wine on your shirt and it just you know rolls off. I mean, it's a wonderful coating, <clears throat> wonderful material, and it's available. And in, in, in interior fabrics and carpet, for instance, it's obviously useful in places like healthcare where you don't want stuff growing on the fabrics, curtains and wall coverings and such. But it, you end up with a color fast, extremely durable, uh, stain resistant fabric that you can use for interiors that obviously would save a lot of maintenance. This has huge implications to healthcare. I appreciate that healthcare isn't the prime focus of Cornet, uh, Cornet members. But the, how many of you have been in a hospital and have ever seen carpet or anything that was even vaguely noise reducing um, or even necessarily engaging from an appearance standpoint? Well, fabrics and carpets have been all but verboten in, in healthcare because of the microbial issues. And so if you can sidestep that with nano-enabled products, it's going to have a huge impact on, on the environment. And one of the largest contributors to uh, quick recoveries on the part of the patients is the way in which the, they, they feel about their, their environment that they're in. But digging in a little deeper, because I didn't want to let that uh, water rolling off your tie idea kind of sit too long, because uh, the perception, at least from my perception, has been, wow, I don't think I'd want to be caught dead wearing that stuff. Uh, the reality is that Armani uh, has a nano-enabled uh, suit product. That I mean, It's the same thing with Armani. is all about touch, right? It, the, all of their materials, it's how does it, what's the feel? of the material. How rich does it feel? Does it look good? Yeah, but how does it feel? And Armani's come out with a nano-enabled product line that uh, uh, is doing what we're saying, and yet you're, you're still talking about a you know, $2,500 suit. Uh, you're also talking about a $30 pair of khakis, because uh, you know, every major maker of khakis is using the same thing, and it's actually on the label. Exactly. The company, by the way, is a company named Nanotex. If you want to Google it, it's really an interesting company, I think. But they license their technology is what's licensed to everyone else. There are other approaches to coming with color fast, stain proof, um, you know, fabrics and that sort of thing. But this one seems to be have the best track record so far. And you end up with the, as they say in the fabric business, you have to have the hand. You know, you got to have that hand, and it's all about the hand. And that's why something like Armani is actually using it because you preserve the qualities that you want, but you end up with a coated fabric that has better performance. Okay, better performance. And by the way, it's benign. It's a green product. <clears throat> um, I, I forgot to mention that the other aspect of this is smart textiles, which is where oh, yeah. things are going. You are beginning to see smart textiles, i.e. textiles that can act as a screen. So what you're doing, what they're doing in that case is weaving nanofibers. I showed you what a bucky full, what a fullerene tube looks like. But if you weave those, if you make a matrix out of those, because that's a washable, it's not, it's not copper, it's not wire, okay? But nanowires, as they're called, are carbon. You can weave them into a fabric and you can end up with a smart fabric. So what could you do with a smart fabric? Well, the picture here is of a... Bra. A jog, jog bra, for instance, that actually monitors your heart rate and can be washed. Okay. There's no copper in there. There's no wires. <clears throat> Energy, HVAC, solar, solar thermal, a lot of technology going in that area. This is a company of uh, no, really well, uh, but there are several on both coasts. And in every country we've been to, people are working on solar and thermal energy. Um, this is actually a, a, uh, an approach to doing a, uh, solar cells that you use, you use conventional printing to impregnate, actually to print an ink, which includes nanofibers, and those nanofibers make it active, and it because so you end up with a solar, with a, with a printable solar panel, which is extremely thin. So you can use it as an inner layer with glass, you can do a number, you can put it on the roof, any number of things, but it makes nano, it makes 
solar cells cheap because up until now they've been extremely expensive. The kind of solar cells you put on a building now are extremely expensive. But that technology is going away. That technology owes its existence to the micro-revolution. Now we're going to nano. You can think about solar in entirely different terms, much more economically. This is a really exciting one, I think, is a company called 123 Systems <clears throat> out of MIT that developed a battery technology. As you know, laptops, a couple, you remember the, the scare a couple of years ago when laptops were blowing up? Um, well, they burst into flame. Well, now they're talking about banning the, uh, the batteries on uh, airlines. That's right, yep. Well, the, the conventional battery is a, is a real problem. Uh, there's a company that developed a nanophosphate-based lithium, lithium ion battery Again, nanotechnology is, is the figure in the chemistry of this, the result of which is they end up with a battery which is safe. You can have a lithium, lithium ion battery that does not explode because of the way they actually make the product. That means that lithium ion batteries are much more practical in such things as power tools. This, for example, DeWalt, you know, maker of, of, uh, of professional power tools that are used throughout the construction industry, they're the market leader, I think. Um, came up with this new line, and it's been a huge success in the marketplace. They don't say nano anywhere on the label, but the simple fact is if they didn't have nano in the batteries that make it possible, they wouldn't have the tool line. So it's all nano-based, but they've chosen not to talk about it. <clears throat> um, by the way, this product ends up being more powerful than a corded tool, which is the first time in the history of power tools that cordless tools have been more powerful. Cordless tools are more powerful than corded tools, and that's what driven their market success with this. This is actually a good one to make the point again on, which is that you're talking about a product that existed, lithium-ion battery, it existed. What's made it more functional and enhanced it and changed the dynamic of the product that it's, that it's being applied to is the nano-enhancement to that lithium battery. It's changed the power output of the battery and it's changed the life of the battery. So now, for in, in the past, you have people in the field with corded to, uh, tools that cause a whole series of, of issues. Now you have a, a more functional tool that's that's able to put out more power and last longer. So we, we really change the dynamic of what's going on in uh, in construction. Paints, uh, you already mentioned, Bayer is one of the companies that actually uses this, but uh, Sherwin-Williams and the other purveyors of paints are using the same formula. Guess what? They license it from the same company. So the technology is pervasive at this point. But it ends up with it, you end up with a paint, which is, you want to talk about it? I mean, you called, he called me one day and said, you know, I want to paint my bathroom, what should I use? And I said, just go to Home Depot. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's a classic because it's, it's something that affects us every day. You know, the clothes thing is, affects us every day. The paint thing affects us every day. How do you get a, how do you deal with the, I'm sure that I'm the only one who has this problem, uh, mold in the, in the bathrooms, uh, or the, the water pulling the, pulling the paint off in the bathrooms or basements. I don't have a basement, but I understand that people do. Uh, so in the basements, what do you what do you put on the walls to stop the, the, the humidity from penetrating the walls? You know, these products are the types of products that you can apply. And the challenge is you don't know about it because you're not in the market every day. The painting contractors don't know about it because it's off on an edge that they're not paying attention to. How do we get that information to the people that are doing the work for us? Should add, in terms of price, the companies that are in the market with these types of products tend to charge a premium because they think they can. The real question is, do the performance benefits trade off? What is the trade off with the performance benefits? Because they're scaling their manufacturing. Uh, by the way, if you buy a GM product, anybody own a GM product? You buy a Toyota product, anybody Toyota product? Um, how about Nissan? Okay. They all use the coatings that are used on their cars, particularly on the plastic parts. Those are all nanotech based. 
they've had to go to nanotech-based products because plastic doesn't accept paint particularly well. They have to coat the, uh, have to coat the material. LEDs, well, I mean, look at the ceiling here. I mean, what would it cost to take, take Magianos and replace all the light bulbs here with compact fluorescence or LEDs? You know, it's, it's a lot of hours just changing the light bulbs, I guess, but the point is they haven't done it yet. But the point is if you want to lower your electricity bill in any building you're responsible for, changing the light bulbs, which is why the energy department is pushing for it, is the biggest step you can take. What are you going to turn to? You're turning to nano-based products. OLEDs, LEDs, compact fluorescence, they all required nanotechnology to get them to the scale that they are at in order to make it possible for that to exist. But LEDs are really just coming on the market. Any uh, little pocket flashlights, I usually carry one with me. You know, the little ones, the really bright ones, those are LEDs. But what's the advantage of an LED? Anybody have, how many of you have those little flashlights? What's the advantage? Weight? Small. Brightness? Last durability and no heat. No heat. They yeah. don't generate any heat. How is that? Now, in the business, they talk about the Edison bulb. The Edison bulb, like these, generates light as a byproduct of generating heat. Okay? Turn it on. The first thing you get is heat, and then you get light. With an LED, you don't get any heat or very little. Okay? So going to OLED screens. Going to on a computer means you can get rid of the fans. I mean, there, there are lots of things that, that are benefits from all this that, that uh, come from, from uh, just the basis of the product. Lifetime, all these aspects are, are what make these little flashlights possible. But it's really exciting because it's an entirely different way, it's an entirely different physics for creating light than we've lived with for 100 years. One of the big concerns everybody's had is, you know, getting the color of the light right for interiors purposes. You know, LED light is, is extremely bright, has a blue cast to it. They're actually, they've actually come out with a way to color balance it now so that the materials, are, the bulbs that are coming on the market are much better <clears throat> than the first generation. But U.S. Department of Energy here, no other lighting technology offers so much potential to save energy and enhance the quality of buildings. That's a policy statement from the department. There are different ways of doing uh, solid-state lighting, but you know it's already a huge market. And it's really going, a lot of that kind of technology is actually going into the devices you carry around. You're, again, your phone, your laptop and such. But Osram and Philips and OptiLED, there are companies everywhere are actually in, in, into this in a big way. A couple different ways of actually making them, shown here. Philips is one of these. And uh, Anyway, different, different techniques used in them, generate less heat, etc. But um, some core technologies. Now this is one we're going to talk a little bit further because I think it's, it's uh, older and it's really pretty interesting and that's insulation. What's the, beyond changing the light bulbs, what's the other big thing you can do with the building that would make it more energy efficient? Better insulation. Yeah. I, I was touring the Middle East uh, this last summer. It gets hot in the summer. <clears throat> and um, they don't insulate their buildings over there. Concrete apartment blocks and stuff like that. Holy cow. What do you mean you don't insulate these buildings? Well, they don't. So they're looking for various types of insulation products that make it possible to reduce their energy load because they've signed up for the Kyoto Protocol too. And insulating their buildings is a big step forward. There's a material that was discovered in the 1930s called aerogel. Google that. Write it down and Google it because it's really cool. I think it's really interesting. Aerogel is, is uh, it's called um, frozen smoke because it has no mass and it has no weight whatsoever. It's the lightest insulator known to man. It was first commercialized for the space program, for the moon, the moon program. It was actually used to line the, the suits that they wore. It gets pretty cold on the moon. 
Um, but it does look like frozen smoke. You'll see pictures of people holding this block of, of stuff that has no weight, and you can see through it. So it's, it's a, the best insulating solid in the world. It weighs virtually nothing. It's extremely flexible, and now it's available commercially in blanket form and in sheets and skylights and things like that. So it's on the market. You probably all heard about it being used to wrap the uh, transatlantic cable that goes from uh, Great Britain over to the continent, right? Well, you see, that's the problem. That's what I've been telling them all along. Nobody knows about it. It's a little too esoteric. But that is one of the uses. It's, 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 it deals with the uh, wrapping that cable, keeping the temperature uh, at a manageable level, as well as insulating it from the water. Anybody seen the movie The Graduate? Dustin Hoffman? You remember that one? What's plastic? I want to say one word to you. Plastic. <laughs> uh, this is the new plastic. It's not plastic, but in terms of one material that you could look at, it has enormously flexible, lots of applications. Aerogel is it. So, you know, if you want to talk to your kids about a cool product that, you know, really changes the way things are done, Google Aerogel. A-E-R-O-G-E-L. So, real question is, what are you going to do with all this stuff? Or what do you tell the contractors to do with all this stuff? How do you charge people to basically say, look, stop trying to do it the old way. It's time to look for some new solutions because the new solutions are what make it possible to achieve the goals you need to achieve. Are there any questions at this point? Yes? Um, sometimes by looking at the patents that are cited, um, but typically, uh, let me direct you to one site. There's a company called Lux Capital, Lux Research, rather. If you Google Lux Research, you'll come up with their site. They track um, companies that are using clean that are in the clean tech or the nanotech business. They're looking at several thousand companies worldwide, so they, they keep good, close track of who's doing what uh, in their R&D efforts, et cetera, whether it's a public company or a private company. Uh, also, the website from the, uh, I've got a link to it up, up here. I'll show you later on. There's, a, there's this group that's funded by the Pew Trust at Princeton that is tracking products. So you can go see if you wanted to buy a shirt or something for your husband, say. Yeah, it's one of you, our last you can go see who's got products out there because they're, they're actively trying to stay up to date on the products that are coming on the market that have now. Chris? My question was similar in that why is it that none of these um, products are advertising it? It seems like, you know, you say you can go to Home Depot and buy bare paint, but you don't know that it's using nanotechnology. Well, or DeWalt with the batteries or any of that. There's a simple reason uh, underneath it all, which is they don't want to beg the policy question. Okay? Uh, um, they are... Be, DuPont is a good example. They have a huge nanotechnology program and products on the market. They just don't use the word. Yeah. The, the, not only are there, there are marketing issues, there are community-related issues, there are health-related issues that you open that Pandora's box and all of a sudden you find you're not selling the product, you're, you're, you're trying to sell the technology. And, and that is certainly an interesting challenge. The writer, Michael Crichton, from ER, but, you know, he, he tends to write books, uh, Basically, science fiction. It takes a, a trend that's taking place and tries to explore the negative side of it. And what's it called? State State of Fear, the book that he came up with about two years ago, I think. Anyway, when he writes a book on a subject, people read it, and that led to a huge scare because that book is about nanotech. What if it goes wrong? The, the premise of the book is, what if it goes wrong? Um, the uh, the gray goo problem. It's called the gray goo problem. You know, what if this just runs away with us? So he's, he asked the question, and suddenly there was this huge scare about, you know, where is this going? Are we in control? That's one of the reasons I pointed out to you that the societal dimensions, the societal impacts, is something that's being consciously 
examined in a number of places by responsible people, just as the products are, are being developed. As I said, it's an entirely different way of doing technology development. So um, it's important to know that, but no company has actually found that putting nano on the label actually helps them sell more products. My son likes hockey. Okay? There's a hockey stick on the market that uses a fiber that is nano-enhanced. And they had long discussions about, you know, should we call this the nano stick or whatever else? And they decided, no, there was no real conceivable advantage to it. And they didn't want to tell their competitors what they were doing. So they just went ahead and put it on the market with a, you know, XLT or something. I forget what it's called. But anyway, it's out there. The one site from Princeton, which I'll show you the link to, is probably the best place really to go to see which products are the ones I should be watching. Any other questions? Okay. RJ? We're, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, preferably a very little bit, but we're going to talk a little bit nonetheless about uh, process and how one might go about uh, integrating this, this, these thoughts into projects. And I'll tell you point blank that it, it is truly not rocket science. It's common sense. And it's people management. It's, it's, it's looking at things the, the same way you've done in the past, but maybe a little off to the side, a little differently. And so... I'm sure that all of you are, are familiar with uh, the stage gate method, okay, which is really simply you do a task, you reevaluate, make adjustments, do a task, make adjustments, move forward. It's the same way that to a certain extent projects go all the time. The more familiar the project is, the more uh, repetitious the, the activity is, the less you go back and evaluate how successful you were. You kind of know how successful you were, and then you move on. But for projects that are similar to what you've done in other words if you're just changing if you're just changing the uh, uh, changing a, a roof or or changing a, a lights you know up till now you pretty much just do more or less the same thing maybe pulling a little bit better roof or maybe a little bit more efficient light but you don't really you're not really thinking out of the box and, and you don't need to but for the types of projects that we're talking about here where you're going to really start to push envelope on change the importance is to look at risk and manage risk. On a simple project, you do it every day because you're just repeating something that you did before. But when you're stepping out of that comfort zone, doing something different than has been done before, and you have people that are going to be up there in the Saturday afternoon quarterbacks or whatever, uh, you, you want to make sure that you're, you're doing it incrementally, that you're actually doing a very data-driven process where you have accountable benchmarks both within the organization and within the project. And that you have the right team put together. It's not necessarily anymore just the, the real estate group, your real estate service provider, your uh, architect, and your, your general contractor. It may be substantially more broad than that to be able to get the kind of knowledge from areas like we're, we're talking about today. You know, who do you need to be able to bring in to get that information? Do you bring in a carpet manufacturer? Do you bring in someone like, like David or myself that might be more knowledgeable on a broader base? Not telling you one way is right or the other, but it's something that you need to be thinking about now about how you can change the dynamics of your projects, or if you need to change it. So I'm going to go through this very quickly because it's not going to be that terribly unique to you. It, it, it's really more about the the detail and the priorities that you put on it. Senior management buy-in is critical uh, for any kind of thing that has tremendous amounts of change to it. If you have some kind of a significant issue that's unique and different, something that's a little out of the norm. And we kind of we took the, uh, the easy way out here and picked the, the, the privacy and uh, HIPAA requirements, things like that, because 
they are difficult to understand exactly how to go about doing it. And traditional methods are usually very not successful or you have to spend a tremendous amount of money to be able to get the kind of sound separation you're looking for. What's a better way to do it that maybe doesn't cost as much and, and, and supports your long-term flexibility? But what other things are available? You know, there's probably a pointer in here somewhere. Um, the uh, incentives, are there tax incentives? Are, are in using nanomaterials or biomimicry or, or what have you, are there tax incentives that are available that might be uh, deferring the cost of, of what you're putting uh, putting into uh, into it, um, collaborating with manufacturers is a tremendous opportunity because there's a, if, if you just look at the the three or four primary manufacturers for furniture that are in the room here, each of them have significant research and development groups that are and I can I can tell you this because I've worked with you know most of them uh, that they are way out there on what they can do. It's just that they haven't brought it to the market yet. So if you have the right project and the right opportunity you get the opportunity to work with them in developing uh, something that might provide you with that extra ability that you were hoping to get but couldn't see a path to getting. So, you know, traditional path, you want a straight line on your schedule, right? You want to go just from beginning to end. And, and to a certain extent, um, you can do that even on projects that are, are looking for the broader opportunities. The challenge is being able to be able to go to the perimeter and pull those big ideas into your project and stay on track, both with your senior leadership expectations. If they say they want it delivered to you by May 5th, you better have it delivered to them by May 5th, come hell or high water. Uh, and if there's something else that's on the perimeter that's really an advantage to you, if you just had more time, once you get that identified, limiting your risk, you can bring that to them and say, here, we can get to, we can get to the completion date on May 5th. Here are the capabilities we're going to provide you. If we had X amount more time, here are the other capabilities we provide. What's your decision? What path do you want to take? And you brought it to them in a fashion where they can make an intelligent decision based on uh, substantially more objective information. Communication is a huge key. Understanding the culture of the organization, of your organization, and working with the, uh, uh, working with your uh, communication people. Um, here's a real life uh, kind of kind of look, and we're gonna. This is the first case. We're gonna be going into a couple things, but sound, oddly enough, is a is a, a major issue. The more the, what we what we've seen, and I'm sure that you can all attest. Certainly, uh, Rich, you can attest that the spaces are getting smaller. People are getting closer. Noise is becoming a bigger issue. Uh, it's always been a big issue, but now it's bigger still. Um, and so, if you look at the issues of privacy laws and their impact on um, how you design your space. Just, yeah, just, please, I'm sorry. Yeah, this is a citation from General Services Administration, which has, what, 8,923 buildings in all 50 states, yeah. whatever. They discovered something really interesting about green. Let me bring this back to sustainability. They've discovered that LEED-certified buildings are less comfortable for people to work in. For one dimension, okay? People like everything else about a LEED-certified building except... The sound. Noise level. Because you've got a lot of hard surfaces, you've taken other things out of the building, whatever else, you've got more open space, you've got more natural light. All these things are right, but you've got less privacy. That's just how, this is how this came, this, this study ended up being done by them because they discovered this significant anomaly, which was, yeah, people like it, but they complain about the noise level all the time. So what are you going to do about it? That was the, problem, the project yep. that you wrestled with. And in fact, the, the, lead, uh, the lead program, is uh, for like for healthcare, right? Yeah, uh, has just added an acoustic component to it, right. 
And what is usually that sort of thing trickles down to the, to the next level. So you can certainly anticipate in the foreseeable future you're going to see the same kind of attention to acoustics in the, uh, in the rest of the lead programs. Uh, but, you know, these are these obvious things. And the, uh, it, this was just presented um, in June of, of last year uh, by, by, the, uh, uh, by the GSA. So it was very, very timely. So why use, why use a nanomaterial? And the challenge is, you know, when, when you have a requirement that's pushing the ability of your current materials, then start looking for the, for the new materials. So acoustics is, a, is an excellent one. Thermal is another one. But you need, to, you need to be careful to keep in mind, you know, are there risks to using this new material? Does it fit with your corporate culture? Is there a time issue, a time constraint from a schedule standpoint that might, might delay you? Delay your project. You you willing to is the value that you're going to get out of it worth worth the risk? And here's a here's a concept that uh, we had we had we had put out um, a couple of years ago actually uh, with the idea of you had a, you had managers that needed to be able to be uh, secluded and quiet, but they also interacted very closely with their teams. There shouldn't be that out of the norm for uh, for John and Cole here and and a variety of other users that are in the design industry, uh, it's a typical problem. How do you manage it? Well, usually you just ask people to endure the, the, uh, the, the noise that's going to be coming through the, uh, through the glass uh, and in the room and hope that it's quiet enough to be able to, uh, to, to manage the privacy requirement or put in sound masking or do several of, of the above. But what we've done um, in, in working with uh, the product that... Uh, uh, David is going to get into a little more. The aerogel product is we took, and this was for um, miserable financial, just a couple blocks over. Uh, they're going to be moving into three, uh, 353 North Clark. Um, we did a prototype space for them for their accounting group. It was about 11,000, 12,000 feet. And we, we mocked up, we put in a full height office. This is a dirt product. Uh, and we put a nanogel uh, insulation layer, quarter inch of, of nanogel insulation on the inside of the uh, of the panels in this office, and it, you will you would what happens was that when you walked across that threshold into that office, it was you could like hear you hear the reverberation and the and the bounce and the background noise. You literally walk across that threshold into the office, and it just went. It was like walking into. It felt like it was walking into a sound studio. Uh, so it had a, just an unbelievably significant impact uh, to those offices. And the opportunity, obviously, is to take that and integrate it into the manufacturing process of the, of the manufacturer and the plant, be able to bring the price point down. So if you're using, in that particular instance, if you're using insulated wall product, uh, there was going to be something like about a 10%, 15% cost premium on the insulation, uh, which by the time you started looking at other things you needed to put in the space, was it going to be a premium, or were you going to be able to not do some other things that you're going to have to do for noise suppression? This is an example that's not working. But if it was working, if it, if it was working, you would be hearing a noise right now <laughs> that would be, I love technology-dependent presentations. Um, what this what this example is is a, a sound, using a, a Pink Panther insulation versus using a nanogel insulation, and if he gets it working, because we heard it earlier, um, the the noise level of the base the base uh, range of the of the diesel engine. We hear it. 
No, great. The, the, the noise level of a diesel engine uh, relates to what you're seeing here from the, uh, from the graph. And it cuts out very effectively a larger, much larger chunk of, the, of that noise spectrum. And consequently, it's the visual explanation of the oral uh, response that I got as I walked across the threshold. It had a dramatic impact on background noise. Not dissimilar in some ways uh, to the when you put noise cancellation headphones on. It's not a direct parallel, but it's the idea. Put noise cancellation headphones on, it cuts out all that constant rumble and, and stuff like that. It's similar in some ways to what's occurring here. But this advantage of this product, as I said, if, is if you're trying to bring natural light into an inter interior space, what happens when you start loading up with drywall and insulation is you can't see anything, right? This is using a product which is translucent. So you get 70% of the light coming through, as well as the insulation value. So you're getting more insulation value and light at the same time, which is goals that you couldn't meet without using a different kind of a technology. This is what I'm getting at is, if you think fiberglass is the only answer because it's been around 50 years, it's not. There are other solutions. And sometimes they can be cost effective. We'll show you an example about that in a minute. So essentially, you know, keys here are communicate, 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 evaluate the circumstance, look at what the opportunities are, look at the materials that you're currently using, see how uh, another approach might provide you with uh, some, some advantages that you didn't uh, typically have, and make adjustments. It's constantly looking back and seeing how the decisions you're making are applying. So what does it mean to you? Well, the key is you need to crystallize what the goals of your, of, of, uh, your approach are so that senior management's on board, so that your team members are on board, so that the manufacturers and other participants are, are clear on what it is that they're supposed to be providing. And be very clear that the nanotech materials can quite significantly enhance the, 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 the product that you're, that you're using and change the dynamics of, of, of what, you're, what you're able to accomplish in your work environment or your building. Warehouses as a, a great example, unfortunately Gary's not here, but uh, warehouses is a great example where uh, the application of uh, an aerogel insulation in the roof and an aerogel-enabled skylight, the translucency that uh, David was talking about, you, you get a substantially higher uh, value, uh, thermal value for the entire enclosure and change the dynamic of the, of the scale for your HVAC plant. And day one come out costing less building this new new product, long-term savings on uh, occupancy costs. Any questions on this? How are we doing for time? We're right about there. Okay, well, I'm going to recharge this. Really quick. This, uh, we mentioned aerogel before. I want to show you another example. You've just seen one example that RJ used. Uh, but I want to use it again because it's a concrete example. It's on the market from re reputable companies, um, um, none of whom we out. Um, but this one happens to be a brand name. It's called Nanogel. So this, in this case, you know that it has nano in it because it's part of the product name. But as I said before, it's, it has the advantage of being lightweight, hydrophobic, highly translucent, and thin. So it, it's both a superb thermal and an acoustic insulator. It's made in a variety of forms, rigid panels, blankets, and that sort of stuff. Um, they have multiple uses. Now, this is a case where you can actually bring a lot of value to manufacturers because they don't know what to make. Okay. At the beginning of the plastics revolution, everybody's saying, well, yeah, but what do we make with this stuff? You know, we could, well, we could make anything. Well, what would you like? Okay. So back and forth, you know, 40 years later, we know how, where plastic is. It's everywhere. Okay. It's become ubiquitous. But back then it was, you know, well, what is it? Now we're the same thing with aerogel. It's like, well, yeah, we could make this or we could make that. But they want, they need to know from people like you and RJ and such people in the business, what should we make with this stuff? 
You can't make everything. <clears throat> it's a green product. This is an example here. It just shows you that you can get an R20. You can get noise reduction. You can get an R20 insulating value. That's huge on, a, on an insulating product. So as an exterior glazing product, it has a lot of advantages. And again, it's, it's a green product. And it's extremely lightweight. So you're taking the mass out of things as well, which means buildings could be lighter, more translucent, all sorts of things, just by using this one material. <clears throat> There's a math formula for how you get it, but I won't try to explain that. Um, it was actually discovered in 1931, but it took a long time to figure out how to make it in large enough amounts. And so it wasn't until relatively recently it was made available in products on a large scale because it was extremely difficult to make. They could make it for the spacesuits for NASA, but you know they weren't making a lot. So it took a while to get to that point. At this point, I'm, I'm mentioning the, ca the company because Cabot is a, is a large, old, well-established company with a good R&D uh, basis. Uh, they're based in, in uh, New England. Um, but uh, they have um, invested in this in a big way. And they have a product on the market that they first started selling as skylights. You see skylights in a shopping center and skylights over a swimming pool. Uh, the swimming pool example is one really good one. This is for a Marriott hotel. Um, they use this skylight material uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, if you put a skylight over a swimming pool, what happens to the heat? Right through the roof, right? You got a lot of heat loss. What happens to the moisture? It follows the heat. So it accumulates on the glass, so the seals break down, so it doesn't last that long. All kinds of things happen. So you have systemic failure, you know, frequent changeouts, in other words, because of that. Well, this is an insulating product, which I said has an R20, extremely high. So you can put ice on the roof, and inside you've got a normal temperature, which means the heat isn't attracted to it, which means the seals last longer. Does that make sense? So you've got a longer life on the product, less maintenance, et cetera, et cetera, and you're preserving more heat in the space where you need it. So it has a lot of advantages. Um, the, uh, this particular product they had been selling as a skylight material, and then they're, they're uh, very big in Europe. Um, they got approached about doing building skins. So <clears throat> this is a, an example of, a, of a, an entire building that was skinned with this material. We have good economics on it, so we wanted to show you that one so you can see how it, how it actually prices out. This is a sports complex in Carrefour in France, um, a fairly sizable site. <clears throat> so four, four and a half acres, something like around there. Uh, and the, the, this was the this was the architect's model of the piece. They wanted a monolithic look. They, were, you know, they had a specific aesthetic in mind for the building, and and uh, the real problem was when they came down to the energy requirements and other ways ways to actually get to a solution. They found that all the they couldn't they couldn't replicate what they had in mind. There was no way to build what they had in mind unless they thought differently about materials. So essentially, we're looking at a one inch thick uh, wall. Um, you've probably all seen cow wall uh, of a sort. It's, it's not dissimilar to that. Well, this is the Caldwell product. Right, right. But, but uh, you know, they looked at, you know, the traditional path to dealing with this would have been putting uh, shaders on the outside or mechanically operated and have to be added to the structure, added weight, added cost, added a whole lot of things. But the alternative was to use this, this uh, aerogel-related uh, uh, product that was uh, the one-inch thick glazing. Uh, and the, the look was consistent with the look that they were, they're, they're, they're going after. Um, and the uh, change slide. The the net result, though, is what was so compelling was the the difference in cost. It's about three hundred and sixty thousand dollars is two hundred forty thousand euros approximately, versus approximately a million dollars versus approximately five hundred thousand uh, dollars, and the savings were uh, substantial. I mean, they're, they're out of the box. You're paying less money to build 
the uh, the the the, uh, the aerogel product or solution. Uh, and on top of that, you're saving, I believe, about eight thousand seventy-five hundred eight thousand dollars a year in energy out of the box, right off the top. So this wasn't the, there was no ROI to it. It was cheaper to do it this way in the first place. And the, the interesting part was. The city of Kakafu was very much behind. I'm sure I screwed that name up, but they were uh, they were very much behind this. And actually, they put money aside for the developers to be able to use to build a more energy efficient building, and they didn't need to use it. So, so just that went into their pocket. <laughs> just a couple of pictures. Just hopefully it went back to the to the city. Uh, just a couple of pictures to show you what it ended up looking like. Quickly, uh, the outside very clean, elegant. Interior. The added benefit of this solution was. That it was very even, uh, diffused light, the type of light that was very, it was a, a, ten, a lot of tennis was being played in here, if I remember correctly. Uh, the type of light that was perfect for uh, the sports facility. Any so, questions? Any questions on that application? Perfect. Okay. Uh, I mentioned some websites and some background. If you're interested, you want to talk to your kids about the subject or hand, give them books, et cetera. There's a book, uh, George Valerian's been around the design business for years. I don't know how many of you know him. He's probably 80 by now. Um, but his uh, latest uh, venture is, is a group called Material Connection. They have a website. Just Google Material Connection. You'll find it. Two gorgeous books. These are really good books to give away as gifts because they're heavily illustrated. They're really written for designers. He's very oriented toward designers and providing design solutions. Material Connection is a, is a, a library. It's in New York and in Milan and uh, Singapore. I forget what other locations. Four locations worldwide. You walk into the library, you can check out new materials. So shoe companies go there, car companies go there. They're basically all looking for, what could I do that's you know different? What are the other solutions that are available to me? So it's a materials library. Really interesting business concept. And they're doing very well. But as I said, the books are, are worth owning. I, I give them away a lot. Material architecture, a friend of mine, uh, John Fernandez at MIT, is, is on the lead uh, research council. And uh, his book called Material Architecture goes into New architectural materials and the advantages. Uh, he and I toured the Middle East this last year. There's a, a number of other things that are really quite interesting um, on the whole subject, but uh, there are some resources if you'd like. Um, I picked an older picture of this uh, of the uh, towers going up here because this is a, a perfectly good example of a building that couldn't be built without leveraging technology. Um, it doesn't look a, quite like this now, I guess, uh, but I like that illustration. But the key point is that Mike Rock, I wanted to make about the quote here is Mike Rocco works for National Science Foundation. And he made a statement which, if it came from anybody else, we'd think was, oh, well, it's just cocktail party conversation. But this is a person of significant authority in U.S. government who said, because of nanotechnology, we will see more change in our civilization in the next 30 years than we did during all of the 20th century. So you're sitting in the hot seat, you're on the forefront of a technology adoption wave that will impact your business, and it's the only way that you'll get done what you need to do in terms of your management goals. So, welcome to a period of flux. I'll leave you with a last a last observation here. This is Jubilee Church in uh, Rome. It has a really nice name that I'm not good at saying. Uh, but uh, the unique situation here was uh, Richard Meyer uh, loves white, loves white. And this is taking concrete, your standard old-time, old-school concrete. What can you do with it to make it a, a new product? Well, they used titanium dioxide coating on this product, and it had two, three key uh, things that occurred. One was that the chromium dioxide is a white white, and it stays white white. Why? Because it's self-cleaning. It, uh, if it's uh, or, or organic, 
it uh, breaks down. If it's inorganic, it washes off. And, and uh, three is that the, the breaking down of the carbon dioxide from the uh, uh, car exhaust, et cetera, uh, that the um, chromium dioxide actually breaks it down into oxygen. So what they found is that in the immediate area, the oxygen content as a result of the chromium dioxide, the oxygen content is higher in that area. And if you were to Google this, okay, this was uh, Itali uh, Cementi. Ital uh, Cementi, yeah. They have, an ex product, they have a U.S. branch in is, Texas. It's in Italy, but it's also here in the United States to get out of Texas. But the, uh, they're actually doing studies in Europe and Japan, you can Google this, uh, where they're looking at roadways with using this chromium dioxide product, particularly tunnels, which they have so much difficulty evacuating the air, have a lot of cost related to that. If you have this product in there, will it continue to break down the, the carbon monoxide emissions and turn it into oxygen, reducing the need for for other mechanical devices. So you're looking at a whole lot of changes that can occur as a result of picking a product, uh, change the dynamics of the project. I think it's exciting because, again, cement is, you know, their, their investment in R&D is really low. It's a 2,000-year-old product. It's the oldest building product known to man beyond stone, right? And yet here it is with a major step forward. And why did Richard Meyer pick it? He didn't pick it because of the air. They had no idea it was going to clean up the air. He picked it because he likes white, okay? And they were concerned about maintenance issues. And they got a benefit they never even counted on. But it was only because they reached out, outside the normal, out of the, you know, way of thinking about things and said, there's got to be a better way to do this. You know, how do we get a material that will actually achieve some of these management objectives? I apologize. We've broken one of my cardinal rules. We've gone past, uh, 145. And, uh, you know, more than happy to talk to anyone that would like to after the fact if you want to hang around. But, you know, thank you so much for your patience. We uh, appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to speak to you and, and uh, hope to uh, see you again next month. Thank you.